Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. We're back. We're back from the Oscars. Um, and I'm also back, I guess, from... Okay, so the Canadian equivalent of the Oscars and Emmys, I would say, is this um, is the Canadian Screen Awards. Right, which I have a friend, uh, High Heater, who's pitching really hard for them to be called the Candies. Yes. As in John Candy. Yes. Uh, he was the originator of that idea. It may yes. catch on one of these days. Um, but yeah, in Canada, because... A lot of the same people were involved in the uh, Genies, which were the film awards, and the Geminis, which were the television awards. They combined them uh, to become a week of celebrations, which is going on right now, which is the Canadian Screen Awards. That's right. Um, So the first night of the Canadian Screen Awards was last night. You guys are hearing this on Monday, uh, March 12th, but um, we are recording this on Wednesday, March 7th. So last night would have been Tuesday, March 6th. And I say this because, um, as you mentioned, it's a week full of celebrations, but every week night, um, there's like a different category of nominations and prizes and awards handed out. You were nominated last night. Right. So I was nominated um, in a couple categories. So I was nominated for um, like best host of a live entertainment program along with Ben Mulroney and Danielle Graham for our Oscar red carpet 2017 show. And I'm just going to make this real spelled out. And that's for uh, eTalk, which is the entertainment show that you host, not to be confused with. Not to be confused with The Social, which is the daytime talk show that I'm a host on. And The Social was nominated for uh, Best Talk Show. And then, of course, there are other attendant um, nominations associated with both shows. Like our friend Dylan was nominated for um, the cinematography on the Oscar E-Talk red carpet show. From last year, not from last week. That's right. And then um, the social's director, Jillian Parker, was nominated for directing. Anyway, so for me personally, I had like personal involvement with those categories um, and we lost them all. (laughs) Right. (laughs) But it was your second tuxedo in two nights. It was my second tuxedo, but I wanted to mention this because although obviously no disrespect to the CSAs, the Canadian Screen Awards, I mean, the Oscars are obviously a big deal. Here in Canada, though, the Canadian Screen Awards mean something to us. Um, and it, it almost is um, it almost is the closest thing I, can ha- I have to relate to the Oscars because it is a smallish community, as you mentioned, the reason why the Geminis and the Genies were combined is because many of the same people work on the same productions. And in terms of getting people there when they're out of town or whatever, it was easier to condense everything to one place in time. So um, 
Listen, there was like zero disappointment in not winning in those categories. And I'm not saying this because you're supposed to say this. I mean, you say that, but you brought it up. (laughs) No, I wanted to bring it up because I wanted to sort of, um, I wanted to sort of explain what it kind of is like to be in a room surrounded by other people who are nominated and to, to feel that anticipation when the category comes up. So what happens is you sit down, it's like in a banquet hall at a hotel and you sit down and at everybody's seat is a program and tucked into the program is like a pullout sheet. And it tells you the category and the order in which all the awards are going to be distributed. So immediately you, you sit down and you look at the list and you're like, when is my category going to be? Right. Of course, yeah. And you know when you can fuck around and when you can go to the bathroom and, Um, and so you look at that list and you're like, okay, so we need to pay attention at like the 60%, 70% mark of the show. Right. And when it gets closer, it get it does get more exciting. Of course. And tenser and like jokes are happening and surprises. That's right. Even though all of us knew we weren't going to win and we knew we weren't going to win because there were Gary Oldman's and Francis McDormand's in our category. Right, 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 right. Um, and well-deserved, you know, 100%. Yeah. Um, and so you're, when the nominations come out, you're like, oh, great, we're nominated. And then you look and you're like, oh, f- well, Francis McDormand is in our category. So you just go and you're like, 100%, you know, intellectually that Francis McDormand is going to win and Francis McDormand did win. And yet it's still exciting. Like the moment before, you know, when the envelope gets opened, but I will say that it's not like a shitty thing when the envelope gets opened and then it's not your show. Well, no, you got to have the same rise of emotions Yeah, either way, the rise and the fall and then the champagne. What you've reminded me of just now is that it might be fun sometime, maybe not this episode, but sometime to talk about the nomination process, how that works, how people get nominated uh, and the voting. Uh, It's not all just private voting and private screeners. Mm -hmm. And uh, let's earmark that for for some time. That can be, uh, that'll be a fun thing to to dissect a little bit because- Yeah. It's exciting to see how it all get breaks down. On that note, just a quick anecdote. We know many, not all, like I definitely didn't know all of the room, but obviously the people around and sitting by my table, I knew a lot of them. And so I mentioned our friend Dylan, who was nominated for cinematography for shooting the eTalk um, live red uh, carpet Oscar special. And so he lost to somebody else we know. Um and Wait, was it to Ryan? Yeah. Hilarious. I know. So so both people we've both worked with. And in my case, like being a host, I've worked – both of those guys have been my camera or sure. the camera shooting me. And um, in specifically, Ryan was my first ever field shoot, like going out into the field and shooting. Anyway, another story. However, Ryan won. He run – he won for shooting, um, for being the cinematographer on The Amazing Race Canada. Right. And as he was going up on stage, they've known each other for years. He gave Dylan a hug. It was like a really nice moment for all of us to see because we've worked with both of them. And then later I ran into Ryan um, out in the hall and he said to me, he was like, hi. And I was like, hi, congratulations. He's like, I voted for Dylan. <laughs> <laughs> And I, in a, like going home, I was thinking about all the things I was going to tell you and what I was going to save for this show to tell you and what I was going to text you. 
And I decided to save this moment to tell you on the show because I just thought it was really interesting because then I was relating it to the Oscars and I was wondering, because like, you know, Francis McDormand and Gary Oldman and Allison Janney, they're all members of the Academy um, and they get to vote. And do you vote for yourself or do you vote for your buddy? Or do you know what I mean? It's just really, it's just really, it was just really interesting to me, like juxtaposition of it since we had just come off of the Oscars. Yeah, it's one of the many ways that this business is uh, uh, just a little wonkily organized relative to maybe some others. I don't know. Maybe at the Finance Awards, you vote for <laughs> your own venture capitalism venture. I don't know. Um, nice us. vocabulary. Yeah, yeah. Really in-depth on that. Very knowledgeable. Uh, let us know about that. Uh, but yeah, it's it's exciting to talk about too because we are kind of still in awards vibe. I wonder whether it's because this year's show, I've written this on the site. I think other people have said as much. This year's show was very pleasant and well-produced mm-hmm. and not exciting. No, it wasn't exciting. Um, and I would say it certainly lacked the I mean, our reaction last year when the wrong envelope or whatever was opened was euphoric, which is, in a way, I feel bad saying that because I've read many, I've read many things since then about how it sucked for Moonlight. How traumatizing it was for Moonlight and for uh, everybody involved and so forth. No, I know it's, they did not take the joy out of it than we did. But, and I've been saying this all week, that's why live TV, mm-hmm. nothing that happened on uh, the 90th Oscars would not have happened if it had been pre-taped. It was all kind of safe. Yes. And this is why live TV is live because anything can happen. Yeah. This is what you want to be experiencing. Mm-hmm. This is why people don't like to watch sports on delay, right? right. You want to be in there in the moment. So yeah, there were no live TV moments, but uh, which is too bad. But what I realized is that it made me not have like Oscar post-show letdown, like that thing where it's all done and you usually feel like, oh, it's over for another right, year. Right, right. Um, usually there's sort of a, a depression and you have to yeah. like soothe yourself with carbs. And, and you're like, I'm good. I feel, yeah, I feel yeah. fine. I feel like we're in the place that we should be. But before we put award season to bed and at the risk of sounding self-indulgent, we have gotten emails and tweets about our Oscar night slash morning next day work process in putting the site together. And so we thought to close out award season, we would answer some of those questions and sort of walk you through, especially this year, it was a little bit different. Usually, Duanna, it's you and me. And this year, it was you, me, and Kathleen. So I want to back up here and like laugh at you because- you say, you know, oh, at the risk of of self promotion, but no, no, no. You've been uh, pr- you've been talking about this since you told everybody on Twitter uh, about your bathroom habits, and that you subject <laughs> not only me. Now you're subjecting not just me, but also Kathleen and the entire Twitter public. When I have to poo in the middle of the night. <laughs> Right. Well, you, who walked into it? You walked into it. No. 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 Okay. She walked Here's what's it. going on here. Uh, we have been doing this, uh, which is to say we've been covering the Oscars in the same room in LA for 10 years now, nine, 10 years. Yeah. Uh, which is crazy. Uh, and a friend of ours reminded me 
that when we first started and we were young, we used to go out a lot. Mm -hmm. There are a lot of Oscar events and places to see people and be seen Mm -hmm. and and collect stories. And that used to be a thing. Mm -hmm. Uh, And now we're old. Yeah. Or more focused or something. And so the writing is about the writing. Yeah. And uh, and over the years, we've kind of evolved how we do it. Yeah. So I can't remember. Like, did it used to, it used to be that we would just fight it out in the moment about who was going to write what and yes. how we were going to do it. Yes. Uh, or maybe text back and forth during the event to say, yeah, let's try this. Or, oh, she just did that. We got to cover I, her up. I don't all. even know how we worked like that. It was so fucking disorganized um, compared to how we have it now. And then a few years ago, our site manager, Emily, uh, started sending us a list of everybody we could possibly cover, right? Yes. Everybody who was going to be there on the yes. carpet at the Spirit Awards. Here's the giant list. Mm-hmm. And we would maybe break it down and see who we were going to talk about and so forth. And then we further evolved to sort of going, mm, are people, like, who are we really going to get at here? And do yeah. we really need to write about that one 92-year-old nominee who nobody knows? Like, every now and again, there's somebody who's like, who's writing about Isabelle Huppert. Yeah. Um, And so we've evolved and evolved. But I think what's most interesting to people uh, that we've alluded to a few times are the fights. Right. Uh, And you may think that we're being uh, kind of cutesy about the fights. Oh, no. It's not cutesy. It's not cute. No. It is... I mean, we're not fucking pulling hair here. We are human being and adults, but... Um, we get really heated and we make the case to each other. Um, and when you're making a case to each other about who gets to write which article, the case is based on like wh- essentially what you're saying is, I think I can represent this person the best way. Yeah. I and have it a- has everything to do with work. I think I can do it better than you. I have a take that you haven't thought of or that isn't on uh, elsewhere on the blogs or whatever. Uh, so who was the, and sometimes they happen in funny ways, right? Uh, I wound up with, uh, the prize Tiffany Haddish, uh, which I think everybody would have loved to talk about, Uh uh, because when it came down to it and I stand by this, when it came down to it and you said, well, who's your best dressed? Mm -hmm. I said, well, she is. But then I said that was cheating. But she was still my best dressed and would have been in her Eritrean outfit, which she wore on the red carpet because, as I said, she wore a tiara and you were there. How long have I been asking for a tiara on the red carpet? Yeah, but like, I don't even think you mentioned it that much in the post. I sure did. Yeah, but you didn't go on about it. Oh, so now it's about how much I go on after I've already won? Well, I'm saying that was what you hung your argument on. And P.S., that's why Kathleen and I called it a cheat because we weren't even... Okay, can we just back up? So here's what we... Sorry if this sounds to everybody so um, all in pieces. But as if you read the site, you know that we save our best and worst or our most critical or most disappointing um, for last. And this is deliberate and you can call us on it. We want to make you wait. Like if you uh, loved X X person's dress, chances are we loved it. Or if you hated it, chances are we hated it. And we want to like build that up and and increase the anticipation. And I should say, and talk about whatever else has to do with that person, right? Like an article about, uh, I don't know, somebody 
is not only about the dress uh, and the look, it's about everything we have to say, but that's where it gets yes. laid. Because yes, why not save the best for last? But also in terms of work process, for me personally, it gives me something to look forward to. Right. Like we at this point will have been writing for 12 to 15 hours straight. We won't have slept. And, and really not have slept. And like really, yeah, there's… We're not, when we're saying all nighter, we mean all nighter. So there are certain nuggets that you want to save for yourself where you're like, okay, you know what? I am expending all this juice. You know, the words, my word bank is depleting. And I'm going to look forward to something at the end where I can regenerate the word bank and tap into that creativity again. And it's hard to do it if you're not super into the person you're writing about. Like, in 2017, our final post was me fucking dumping on Justin Timberlake right. at the Oscars because he kept fucking monkey jumping in front of Just, uh, Jessica Biel. And I was saving that shit because I knew I needed that moment of give and like acceleration right at the end. To build up a head of steam. That's right. So we sit down, we duke it out. Is there anybody that you were really sad not to address or that you, or that you thought, oh, I should have Oh, talk tons. more about this or pass this off? Tons. Emma Stone, mm. Jennifer Lawrence. Mm. Um, Kathleen had um, Kathleen had Mary J. Blige. But, you know, to back that up for a second, I wrote Jennifer Lawrence, who I think was originally assigned to you. And we were trying to make things more even in terms of distribution. And I said, you have a lot. And you said, okay, so take one. I said, okay, I'll take Jennifer Garner. And you went, no. <laughs> so I took Jennifer Lawrence instead. Right. So it's a process of negotiation. We start with how we're going to end, which is who we end with, the best and worst. Um, and while we were debating Tiffany Haddish, you – we weren't even – no. So to go back to Tiffany Haddish, we hadn't even gone to the point where we were best and worsting yet. You just fucking came right out and were like, well, she's going to be my best dress. And I accused you of cheating because you jumped the gun. We hadn't got – we had not even come to that point in the discussion. You just had to plant your flag. No, actually, it was exactly the opposite. You Whatever. said, who's your best dress? But here's another question I have for you. Knowing me as you do, and we've been doing this for 10 years, I want to ask you an honest question now. Who else would you think would have been my best dress? <sighs> I mean, I think Nicole Kidman. You had Nicole Kidman. I know, but like… Uh, <laughs> anyway, see everybody, this is what it's like. Um, so a couple of years ago, we developed a not that sophisticated system where we actually post the order of uh, the posts on the wall on cards… And it's psychologically motivating to rip them back down. Did you get a photo this year? I think I did. we should put that up. I got a photo before it was adjusted, um, and I ended up adding… Oh, we added uh, Emma Watson because right. of the tattoo. Yeah. And we added… Somebody else. Yep. Um, <laughs> which, yeah, we're too brain dead to remember right now. But but I, yeah, I, I took a shot of it um, when it was like… Before we, we made our additions, which we always do. So what happens is we start with the list now that we're more organized on cue cards, different colors. After we've eliminated, he did nothing, she did nothing, don't That's care. That's right. Uh, as I wrote yesterday, a great tragedy was that there was kind of nothing to say about Lin-Manuel Miranda on actual Oscar night. Speaking of having juice, 
you know, you got to go with where the story actually is. That's right. So we then when we start writing, new pictures are coming out, new details are coming out. We're constantly checking as we're writing, updating, and inevitably at the what, 90 minute to two hour mark will be like, oh, fuck, so-and-so showed up at Vanity Fair. This has to be done. And then we slot it in. Constance Wu was one of them, wasn't it? Yep, that's right. Yeah, um, The additions, I mean. So that is always, we start with a clean list and we order it and assign it. So um, we work backwards, who's going to be the best and worst. Then we go back to the beginning, who's going to be the first. And then we fill in the middle, we assign, and then we write to order. Now we do, Yes. So we write to order and then we rip the cue cards off of the wall as each article is submitted and posted. Um, and f- and then, of course, we have to allow time for last-minute additions. And meanwhile, back at the ranch, uh, the rest of the Laney Gossip team is formatting and adding photos and looking for specific things that we want. I remember asking for, not knowing if I could get it, uh, the lapel pin on Jordan Peele, mm-hmm. which was uh, buck antlers yeah. that were red-tipped, which uh, it's been well over a year, is a spoiler, is a is a key kind of image from the movie. Uh, so that's, again, that's Emily or Yasek finding that for us and making them live in the articles the way you want them to live. That's right. And then we start writing, and while we're writing, we dif- we each have different writing styles. I, for example, need to work at a desk, a proper chair, desk, and typically I don't move for hours. This drives Duanna crazy uh, because she… She also needs a footstool and puts <laughs> her feet on a stool, and it's been a, a knocked-over recycling bin in a pinch. That's right, because I have short legs that dangle off of chairs. Um, so… Duanna does not ever work in a traditional setting. So you're either on the bed, on the couch, every position change, like your your position changes, I would say every half an hour. I wouldn't say that. I was very stable this year, but I can't sit on, I can't be on a bed because you could fall asleep. Uh, But yeah, certainly I like to shift. I get up, I move, I move back around. Yes. Uh, You missed a whole like uh, a yoga sequence while you were gone at one point yeah. because I needed to, you know, loosen up the muscles. I got to move. Yeah. There's a kineticness to it. Yes. And now let me explain too what we also have, the conditions we have to work through between fatigue and and time. Um, so for me, I, in addition to writing the blog, I have my commitments uh, to the TV shows, specifically to eTalk. So what happens is that around... 4 a.m., around 3.30 to 4 a.m. Pacific time, I do two hours worth, three hours, three hours, three hours worth of what we call phoners. So phoners are quick radio hits where I call into radio stations across Canada and do three to five minute chats with them that are set up by my network. My network is CTV to promote eTalk's Monday Oscar wrap-up. So Duanna and Kathleen now, in addition to being tired um, and all the other challenges, have to sit through three hours of me. And when you're on the radio, you can't use like normal conversation voice. You have to use broadcaster voice. Hi, this is Lainey. The Oscars worst is so much fun. And my favorite moment was when Tiffany Haddish and Maya Rudolph presented together. It was so funny. And the entire room was lit up. 
that's broadcaster voice. So tell me what it's like to write through that. Okay, so uh, it's funny that you say that because I said to – this was Kathleen's first year doing it with us. It was great uh, to have her with us and to add another dynamic to the mix, which was really funny. Um, But I said to her, it's actually one of the moments that I look forward to in the night because when you're writing and you're staring down a to-do list that looks really impenetrable – and it's the middle of the night and you think you're never going to get done. The start of the phoners reminds me that it's morning somewhere. Mm-hmm. And so morning is coming. Right. And so it will be okay. Like it's not going to be night forever. <laughs> yeah. I feel like, oh, right. That means it's it's 4 a.m. That's okay. We're going to make it. Uh, and by the time you're done, the sun is usually coming up and I feel like, okay, I, I can get a second wind and come around this. That's the, right. The quiet, silent hours between... 1.30 and 3.30 are the hardest for yeah. me, uh, the ones where it's most likely that it might never happen. Uh, so I quite like it. Mm-hmm. Uh, I also uh, really enjoyed giving you buzzwords to insert in your <laughs> interviews this year. Because, uh, you know, as you say, after a decade, I know a few of them. Yes. So I hadn't heard some of them and I needed to mm-hmm. to have those check in for me. After about an hour, you hadn't heard the phrase that I use perhaps too much. Well, you so use you it reminded every year. me. Yeah. So you reminded me that I needed to pull that one out of of the bag. Yeah, I hadn't yet heard, well, this is our Super Bowl, which is your response to, well, have you slept yet? And of course, the answer is, you know what? No, we haven't. But listen, who wants to sleep? This is our Super Bowl. This is what we train all year for. It's super exciting. And so I'm happy just to be here. And we just want to keep the party going. Yes. How was that? It was great. Yeah, I could do your whole script at this point, I think. What I'm interested in, too, is like, I mean, we're talking about this because we're talking about work style and work right. process. And you can you can work through that cacophony. Yeah. I mean, I think the obvious question here is if you're doing radio interviews, why not go somewhere else? Or the bigger question, which is you write on the internet, why do you need to be in the same place at all? Right. But the answer is that there's styles to feed off, but energy and ideas Mm -hmm. to exchange and things that just are better. I think we, it's been made really clear to us over the years that it's just better when we're in the same place and bounce things off each other. And at one point you were trying to look for a word for the Mm -hmm. way Zendaya was walking. And so you demonstrated the walk while we threw words at you until you decided. That's right. And, and I always ask you, Duanna, like, you know me, I love, love, imagining what it's like to be in a television writer's room. And you know, I'm always, whenever you're on a new show or you're working on a new project, I will always ask you, what's the room like? And I get off on you describing it. And I imagine, not that it's exactly like we have in our war room for post Oscars, but I imagine that when stories are being created, and this is what we're doing on Oscar night, we are writing stories, we're following narratives. That, finding narratives in some cases. That's right. That you're in a room all together and you're just, I, I imagine that there's whiteboards and lots of cue cards and all of you writers in a team. And this probably is the same way on many shows that many of you out there are watching. Writers do this. They surround themselves together. It's a lockdown-ish. Oh, yeah, it is. Uh, and there are periods of every writer's room that you've ever heard written about or heard talked about. Uh, talks about the 
the need for what looks like screwing around yes. uh, balanced with work. Yes. Uh, and in a writer's room, there is a necessary amount of yammer about lunch or the date you went on or whatever right. that sort of gets you into the groove of the room and mm-hmm. sharing ideas with people. Uh, and then there are periods of intense work. Yeah. Uh, you know, the joke with all of us is that I like to talk through the whole thing. Oh I want to- Oh my God, your outbursts. Well, <laughs> I'm not, I'm not saying I would ever change it. I just, you are the outburst one. Yeah. Well, it's important. And like, this is why I'm sitting in a room with people and not, uh, you yes. know, typing alone somewhere. Uh, but yeah, it's periods of intense work broken by mm-hmm. consultation with others. Yeah. Uh, or, you know, being together and talking all the way through as you do, and then going off on your own and writing things. There is actually, uh, more, uh, akin to a television room than I would have, uh, than I would have earmarked right away. That's nice. Well, I'd like to, you know, and, and for those of you out there who are listening, you know, sort of what scene in a movie it reminds me of sometimes when I think about you in writer's rooms and when we're trying to describe our writing war room after the Oscars is there's a scene in, um, a few good men. So Mm, Tom mm -hmm. Cruise, Demi Moore, um, I can't remember the third guy's name, but, um, Weinberg, like, you know, Jack Nicholas has that famous line. He's like, what about you, Lieutenant Weinberg? Do you remember that line? <laughs> yes, actually, now that you say that. Um, and their uh, brainstorming strategy for their case, right? To defend um, to defend their case. And the, the three of them are in whoever's apartment. I think it's Demi Moore's apartment. Or anyway, whatever. Tom Cruise's character is walking around all the time. At a certain point, he has to grab his baseball bat. Do you remember that? Yep. And he has to have his baseball bat in his hand and it helps him think better. That's a little bit of how I picture you guys or you in a writer's room or in certain scenarios. And it's a little bit of what it's like when when we're working together at the Oscars. Yeah. And, you know, it's all about having all of the people in the same room. Mm -hmm. Uh, We watch the show with the entire eTalk at the Oscars team. Yeah. uh, Which, of course, uh, many of whom were my colleagues years and years ago when I was on eTalk when we met. Uh, and that's an energy and a dynamic. And then we go into our war room and that's an energy and a dynamic. Yes. When I first started working in TV and was in the room, uh, we were having a story problem at one point mm-hmm. and it wasn't working and we're all kind of beating our heads against the wall. And it was metaphorically three in the morning. And I went to go to the bathroom because it's like, well, we're not doing anything and I got to pee sooner or later. Right. So, And my showrunner said, whoa, hey, don't get out of the boat. Don't get out of the boat, which means, you know, we're all in this. We're all working it out together. Mm -hmm. Don't you bail. Uh, And I'm sure there's a rocking boat metaphor in there somewhere, but I'm not a boater, so let me know. Uh, And, you know, you have to take care of your biological needs, obviously. I didn't pee in a bucket. But the idea is you stay there until things are finished. And that's one of the reasons, too, I think that we stay while you're doing your radio interviews or that you stay in your fugue state of muteness while I'm screaming about uh, whoever has offended me or et cetera, because the dynamic of Mm -hmm. staying in the room and staying in the boat means maintain that energy because this is what's working. So what's it like for you when you find yourself alone in the war room? Because every year, so what happens is that another one of my commitments for television is that 
I also have to leave Duana for about two to three hours at a certain point to go do television hits. Um, and Kathleen, who uh, produced me this year, had to leave with me. So uh, this year at about, what was it, 7 o'clock? 7 a.m. Pacific, uh, Kathleen and I left you for three hours because we had to travel to a different studio to shoot the, the live satellite hit that I did back for the social. So you're by yourself. Right. Um, Are you I'll, okay? Yeah, it's, I'm okay, but I'll be honest, it slows down at that point. Yeah. Because there's not the sort of energy of other people doing right. tickety tick and click and send. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's definitely a lull or you can find yourself wandering around the same articles over and over again and going, eh, do I care? Yeah. What I don't do, what I make a real point of not doing is looking at what everybody else is doing. Other coverage has started to come out by then. Right. Uh, other tweets or even sometimes early morning friends of ours messages uh, have started to come in. Yeah. And I need to not read those because I don't want my, the idea that I had at 1130 PM when Mm -hmm. I was advocating for Tiffany Haddish or whoever else. Right. I don't want it corrupted by anything that I see at 10 AM. Right. So I really try to like maintain, I don't know, mental purity. At that point, but yeah. it's easier said than done. Uh, and and yeah, no, I'm aware of like, I'm aware of not being there. And you're also aware of like, well, they have another job to do and and I'm just here and I better like, I should, I should have another job to do. I should do something else. So I also sometimes have done that. I've tapped yeah. over to uh, other deadlines in order to make sure we maintain all the rhythm. Well, I, I mean, for us, it's frustrating. Um, I can say for me, I hate leaving the war room. Right. So, because then I have to write in the car. I don't know how you do that. That's also a thing. I could not do that. Uh, I, the nausea would not allow it. Yeah. Um, So that's great for you, but I can't, maybe I should try voice dictating a post. Yes, I would love that. I hate voice dictating writing. Like I can't do it. Right. I have to see the words. So Kathleen and I had to write in the Uber, and then we, when we got to um, the studio, uh, we would write in between, like they would te- – at first, what they, we get there so early because they have to test the lines and the sound. So I get my earpiece in, we test the sound, and then they're like, okay, Lainey, sounds great. And then we have like – we stand down for 20 minutes. So in that 20 minutes, I'm in the chair facing the satellite camera. Kathleen's in the corner in a chair, and we're both writing on our phones. I brought my laptop this year. I was smart. Um, oh, actually, no. In the studio, they never used to have Wi-Fi, and now they do. But you can just tether to your phone. Did she not bring her laptop? She brought it this time, yeah. Oh, okay. Um, so, um, so this year we wrote in between hits. Like, on the social, I was on in, we have five blocks in the social for a one-hour show. I was on block one at the beginning, block two at the beginning, and then block five. So I did my three-minute bit off the top of block one. Stood down for 12 minutes, wrote, then came back from commercial break, was on three minutes at the top of block two, then wrote for 25 to 30 minutes before block five. That, that to me is frustrating. You're breaking the, the, the rhythm. And then we had to write back, like on the way back into the car. So anyway, for those of you out there, for us, the war room has a specific purpose and it definitely contributes to our um, productivity. Yeah. And I would say uh, that, you know, when you said 12 minutes, that could easily be a full article post. In the end… Or it uh, could be one sentence. Oh, yeah. It depends. (laughs) 
I would say in the end, we generated, uh, what did you say? Around 12,000 words? 15? Uh, no, I think, what what was it? 14? I sure. Yeah. Yeah, we so, generated 14,000 words between the three of us. And, you know, I... I I would say a majority, but not uh, not a hundred percent of them were coherent. Uh, so that's what it looks like over about twelve hours, I guess. In twelve hours, there's yeah. about fourteen thousand words. And in other industry application here, many articles um, for business practice and uh, studying business practice from Harvard to Stanford have talked about the value of the war room in any team. Oh, interesting. Um, yeah, and I've written about it before. Um, Forbes, uh, in 2016 did an article called why your company needs a war room like Uber. Of course, this was 2016 before, you know, Uber may not have had the reputation it does now, but, um, there are many business case studies about war rooms and how they can contribute to cohesiveness in team building and teamwork specifically related to focused or project focused work. Um, and, uh, for us, uh, I would, I feel like our project focused work, specifically the Oscars is that like war room case study. What I love about that is, uh, two things actually, uh, first of all, that it's not talking about a boardroom. The idea of the war room, the bunker, we called it is that uh, again, to invoke James, hi James, uh, you don't get out of the boat. You're not leaving. You don't go for lunch. This is where you live until the project is done, mm-hmm. first of all. Uh, and the second thing that I love about that is the idea that you are there to to be your whole self, I suppose. Which, right. you know, uh, we <laughs> – so we talked about your bathroom habits. Um, and uh, Kathleen consumed her first Red Bull in a real long time, and that had some effects for her. Right. And, uh, you know, other things and, and so forth. So it's about being your whole – person yeah. and appreciating that in, in your team. Um, and the, and that leads me to my last point, which is to say, you mentioned that the war room was in Kathleen's hotel suite. Yeah. Uh, you and I have always shared a room. Yes. And done it there. Uh, but <laughs> sometimes, uh, you know, the luck of the hotel draw, some rooms are different than others. Oh my God, our room this year. Some of them have yeah. desks and couches and mm. armchairs mm. and beds, and some of them really don't. Yeah. So in the end, that's a lid on uh, the 90th Oscars for us. Yep. That's it for us. But speaking of war rooms and war room chemistry and value or not, argue it with, uh, argue it if, if you want to, send us your war room stories and whether or not... That has been your experience um, in your workplace. If you've thrown your team in a room and locked the door and said, you're not leaving until we figure this out, I want to know about it. I also want to know what you ordered food-wise for Mm -hmm. them when that happened. And we'd like to read some of these war room stories um, on our next episode if you are comfortable with sharing it. This is a podcast about work, about best work practices, so... Uh, the war room is up for debate. There are some theories, schools of thought that say that it's actually not that great. Who? Who says that? Well, for example, I'm looking at an article right now, and this is from 2012, so maybe a little bit dated, um, but it says why project, why modern project managers do not need a project war room. I fundamentally disagree because I actually have only experienced good things in a war room, but you may have 
an anti-war room story to share, which, hey, I we want to hear. Duanna? Uh, okay, yes. <laughs> I mean, I just want to make sure that this article is not about the tyranny of meetings, because that's a whole other thing. Sure. And a whole other topic. Yeah, a war room is a very specific, it's not a meeting. A war room is a very specific setting where usually it's a project to be tackled. You're not leaving until you already know what somebody's BO smells like. That's right. Anyway, share with us. We'd love to hear it. And to finally, finally close out the Oscars, but it's more of an extension of an idea that came out of the Oscars. We need to talk about the two words that Frances McDormand threw down on stage while accepting her award for Best Actress. She left on these two words like it was a mic drop, and that is Inclusion Rider. Right. Head over to Hulu this March, where our new shows and movies will keep you streaming all month long. Catch the acclaimed movie, All of Us Strangers, starring Paul Mescal and Andrew Scott. Stream the new Hulu original limited series, We Were the Lucky Ones, with Joey King and Logan Lerman. And don't forget about Grey's Anatomy. Every Grey's episode ever is now streaming on Hulu. So, what are you waiting for? Go stream something new on Hulu. So, here's one of the things that I love about Frances McDormand. Immediately, the entire internet explodes going, inclusion writer or inclusion writer, if you're making a Winona Ryder pun, Mm -hmm. Um, nobody knew what she was talking about and she didn't care. Mm -hmm. In fact, it was maybe even the point. It was a homework assignment. It was a homework assignment, but it was a homework assignment for the people in that room. Yes. So uh, an inclusion writer in its simplest terms, everybody who is above the line, have we talked about above the line and below the line before? We have. I think we have. Uh, above the line is creative talent uh, who are involved in shaping the project. That's uh, director and actors and writers uh, on a film. Maybe sometimes some of those writers are creative producers or directors are creative producers on in television. Mm-hmm. They're above the line talent. Generally, the people without whom the show doesn't get made. Below the line is, well, you need these people to physically make the show. Mm-hmm. Uh, which is the gaffers and the ADs and the whatnot, they're performing a function as opposed to creating a story. That's okay. the, that's the distinction. And so uh, above the line, people usually have riders mm-hmm. uh, that go with their contracts. Mm-hmm. Now, even low-level writers have riders. Uh, for example, uh, there was a, a contract that I signed in my very first professional writing job and uh, my agent at the time said to me, I need you to flip to clause nine right. and strike it out. And I was like, okay. So I go to clause nine and it says, I hereby agree that I will not uh, ride a motorcycle, water ski, or otherwise damage my like right. physical equipment. Right. Uh, and he was like, just strike that out and initial it. Like that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Obviously, that's the only clout that I have. And he had established that with more established clients. Uh, but everybody has a, a writer that the producers do or don't agree to. But if you are a huge, huge talent, Mm -hmm. if you are somebody like Frances McDormand Mm -hmm. or anybody else who is nominated for any of those acting or writing or whatever awards, you are immensely, immensely powerful. 
Yes. Uh, I would extend that to anybody who is the lead on a television show and some second leads, depending on who you are. Right. Uh, they all have riders. And generally, they say things like, uh, requires a private dressing room that is, you yes. know, away from everybody. Or Well, I, that's what I like about that. That's what I think is so funny about this, because I, I think that in general out there, when you hear a term writer associated with a celebrity, you think of the tour, right? And the, the writer that goes on like some celebrities tour and the, the dressing room has to be all white with candles and they only want yellow M&Ms, like that is the pervasive That's the association. Under- yeah. And the reason that happened, by the way, the story is, and I'd have to find which band it was, uh, I want to say Foo Fighters. The reason that there was a request for no green M&Ms right. in, the, in yeah. the M&Ms that they wanted was to make sure that somebody was reading the writer at all. Yeah. That if you include something ridiculous like that, that it, you know, that tells you that they actually looked right to see that what you actually needed was, you know, 50 feet of cables or whatever. Because, of course, the reason that bands have riders, we're mm-hmm. all over the place here, but the yeah. reason bands have riders is because they go from place to place and have to recreate the same show every time. So most of the rider is pretty boring. Most of the rider is X number of PV amps and X number of, you know, cable and all these kinds of lights. Uh, That kind of thing is required to throw the show. Yeah. Uh, And then it extends to, yes, actors who need, uh, I require a ride back and forth to set. Or, you know, I require vegan options available for lunch every day. Whatever that is. And these, I want to stress, are all... You can debate whether or not they're reasonable, but mm-hmm. they are they're an accepted part of doing business. Well, and it extends past just a band or um, an actor. Like I don't have official writers on things that I do, but Yasik is de facto my manager and if I'm doing a speaking engagement or if I'm committed to some sort of an event, when we look at the schedule of it, he makes sure to build in time a block or two of time for me to blog. Right. That is, you know, these aren't writers. These aren't like specific Well, but if we... That, if but they're we, conditions. Yes. If we wrote your writer, it would say... Yes. Uh, you know, appearing... You know, yes, if they're going to have you travel at 7 a.m., then it's conditional on... That's right. ...having hours between whatever and whatever to... That's right. Yes. And so... Essentially, if, if for example, if someone's booking me on a trip, the rider condition, the condition would be like, hey, when she flies, ideally, we need to make it so that she flies in a way, and it doesn't always work out this way, but we ask for it, that, like, she can't leave the blog for an entire fucking day. Right. So your flight is… That's right. …early on or yes. late in the day or whatever it is. That's right. So anyway, to go back to the inclusion rider… Right. …what they're saying now is that um, Frances McDormand and other actresses with that kind of capital… And actors and writers that's and directors… Right. Uh, …should include on their right on their riders mm-hmm. uh, gender parity and uh, and diversity parity. That's right. Which is to say either a one-to-one parity or uh, a meaningful portion of cast and crew or, you know, it depends, I guess, on a case-by-case basis. Mm-hmm. Uh, I watched a movie on the plane on the way to L.A. called Novitiate, yep. uh, which is uh, set in a convent and had Melissa Leo and Diane Agron and so forth. Like, that movie did not have 
gender parity in the cast. It was all women except for one. Right. But that's, you know, so I mean, I think it's one of these things that can be interpreted, right? But that's right. In every situation where it can be, uh, this is what they're asking for. So the the reason why we're bringing it up still is, of course, this is a valid discussion and always will be, but on uh, March 7th, um, The Hollywood Reporter published an article that I sent to you as a pitch for the show, and uh, the title of the article is, Francis McDormand's inclusion writer goal may be elusive. And this article goes on to interview entertainment lawyers who have practiced uh, the inclusion of inclusion writers in the contracts for their clients, why it remains elusive or why it was elusive, um, how they introduce it. To me, it was interesting on the level of, well, I mean, interesting on many levels, but there's one detail about the fact that they don't like to publicize it. Publicize what specifically? Um, okay, so so here's a quote. Um Yet Smith and Kotagal, Kotagal, um, aren't sharing the clauses they've crafted. These are two lawyers, I guess, who who work on inclusion writers for clients. Yet Smith and Kotagal aren't sharing the clauses they've crafted. Quote, the language is for attorneys, actors, and content creators. We don't give it out, says a colleague of Smith's. We want to avoid public negotiations, says Kotagal, but the Washington-based attorney may also see secrecy as a ticket to Hollywood legal work. Quote, civil rights lawyers have a right to make money, she notes. Anyway, so all of these details about how inclusion writers work and the practice of them is now being, like, they're now being discussed uh, after Frances McDormand introduced the term worldwide at the Oscars. So, yeah, it's interesting because the, um, the concept is not new. Mm-hmm. The phrase inclusion writer and the idea that actors should demand it um, was actually created by Smith, as you call her, uh, USC professor Stacy Smith, uh, came up with this idea in 2014. And so it's known that this is something that we could use, might use. Basically, uh, I kind of boiled it down on Oscar night to if you're powerful and you have ideals, then put your money where your mouth is. And it's worth saying that this, you know, this doesn't cost anybody anything. Uh, it, this is not a, a payout in any way. It's just about who you hire. Mm-hmm. But the debates about why it might not work are laid out in this article. What did you think about this article? Well, for me, it was quite introductory in the sense of I want to know the process behind how these are how these are crafted. Um, and specifically, they talk about sharing the clauses that they've crafted. That's interesting to me. I wasn't sure about that. Like maybe they help to make this seem attractive, these clauses, and not uh, restrictive. I'm not sure why the proprietary clauses were a deal. And they said like, quote, the language is for attorneys, actors, and content creators. So it was really, listen, I, when I look at a, a contract, my, uh, like my eyes roll back to the back of my head and I pass out. Like I, I don't, I cannot read a it, contract. Interesting. I really find them fascinating. Oh, yes. It can read a contract. No problem. I like, love a, con- but I quite like it. I like sort of, I feel like it's like a Sudoku. 
like you're brain teasering and turning all the words inside out until you find out what they actually mean. I can't do it. And if all else fails, uh, you call your friend Lorella, who's a lawyer, and yes. they're like, what does this mean? Which is what I always do. Right. Um, I can't read a contract and I can't read like a numbers spreadsheet. Like Yasik is trying constantly, trying to get me to look at like a bank balance statement and a whatever. And that's another thing that makes me want to pass out. I've made my feelings on this clear. You should look at the spreadsheet. Fine, whatever. Um, anyway, so the language in the contract, I mean, it felt like secretive. Right. But I guess what I meant was the article itself lists uh, reasons why this might not work. Yes. Uh, and it says things like, uh, <clears throat> uh, the writer, as Smith and Kodigal outlines in their, sum in their summary, focuses on improving diversity in select below-the-line jobs, uh, cinematographer, production designer, sound, first and second AD, et cetera, uh, and supporting roles that do not affect story sovereignty. So this is, as we point out, this is not about, uh, I don't know, um, Sam Rockwell going into uh, a movie company with an idea because he's now an Oscar winner and then being told, oh, sorry, actually we're going to fire you and replace you by a woman of color. That's not what's happening here. No. This is about crew and below the line uh, members. And it also creates financial consequences for studios that don't engage in good faith efforts. Right. Uh, and so it says, you know, will studios agree to binding commitments and monetary, monetary penalties? Uh, some have their doubts. And the thing is, I find this a little bit bullshit because of course they will if they want it bad enough. Right. How many people do you think are thirsty and dying for something that looks like Big Little Lies looks? Mm -hmm. Huge Oscar-winning cast, yeah. only getting bigger, uh, more and more people are being celebrated, and they're all going back to HBO for a second season. Yeah. Who wouldn't gag at that? Every studio in town, right? Yes. And I think that that is, but that's not how this is being positioned. But, that, but that's why I take issue with this article. Um, because it's creating problems where there aren't any yet. Mm -hmm. uh, if Nicole Kidman or Reese Witherspoon walks in and says, oh, hi, I'm a super proven producer. Right. I'm a hit machine. Mm -hmm. And I have something for you here. And by the way, here's an inclusion rider. Yeah. They'd be like, yeah, sure, no problem. Yeah. Yeah, no worries. Mm -hmm. No big deal. And that's what Frances McDormand knows. And yeah. that's what she's trying to point out. Yes. And then what happens there is that, of course, there is a more equal amount of people who get experience because I have run into this so many times. Uh, and, you know, I work on projects that I think try really hard to show diversity uh, in front of the screen and, and behind the camera as much as possible. But often what happens is that when people say, well, I just hired the best person for the job. Well, yeah, that person was likely the best person for the job because he's been hired for seven things mm -hmm. since he got out of school. Yeah. So he is more experienced yes. than the uh, assistant uh, who is South Correct. Asian, who is a woman who has not been hired for anything. Yeah. You line them up and they both want the same job and he is more experienced. He is better for the job in the sense that he is more experienced, that he has more, you know, opportunities to learn the work. Right. And that 
gap is only going to get bigger. Mm -hmm. So what this does is it begins to eliminate the gap so that when you have uh, a choice of three cinematographers, you're not going, well, so-and-so has done only three Oscar-winning films and the other person has done 17. This is what this aims to eliminate. Uh, And I, I have trouble seeing how it won't work. There's another line here that says, Others wonder whether such writers are workable at all, especially in television. Would numerical targets be per episode, per season, and how penalties would be assessed and to whom they would be fa- and to whom they would be paid? I mean, again, this is an article written that is taking one person's grumbles and yeah. presenting them as fact. Uh, yes, how would it be done? Uh, it would be done per per season. You have 13 episodes. Okay, great. Uh, Six and a half of them have to be not white males. So six and a half episodes is hard. So maybe it's seven. There you go. Seven out of 13. Is that discriminatory? That's a question that's being raised. Is that discriminating against, uh, you know, experienced uh, white male writers who might otherwise be there or directors? I don't think so. Because there's always work available elsewhere. What it does it mean that it might be less easy as a as a white male to rise up as meteorically and as quickly? Yeah, it might mean that. Okay. Am I oversimplifying? Like am I being No, I Mary don't think, Sunshine? I don't think you're oversimplifying, but I do think that they're ignoring the actual evidence that they have in front of them that this is blatantly not true. Like in that paragraph that you're reading from, it says and it continues, even the writers' authors acknowledge the risk of reverse discrimination suits, which could ensnare not just a studio, but even the A-list star who demanded the writer. I, I don't I don't fucking understand where this is coming from. Like you brought up Big Little Lies? Right. Alexander Skarsgård mm-hmm. won every award right. that he was nominated for in that show. That was a predominantly female cast. The females were rewarded and awarded, and so was he. Yeah. And in fact, that given that he was he was uh, celebrated for playing this part, it actually opened. Did you care about Alexander Skarsgård? P.S. Before Big Little Lies, M- me personally, no. Yes, you not at all. You exactly. Know that. And now, yeah, now I'm more interested. Now you're like, oh, this guy can do that. The guy from True Blood. I don't know what his character's name was. He took a shirt off a lot. People thought he was hot. I didn't care about him, but now he was Perry, and he was so good, and he won all these awards. But he was really good. Well, I'm interested in the man who chooses to play that role. That's right. I'm interested in the man who chooses to play the role where he yes. doesn't have redemption and he doesn't yeah. have a big hero scene. Uh, and it's the end. And same could be said for Chris Pine, who was a leading actor. I mean, how many Star, like what, Star Trek movies and this and that, and is one of the Chris's, and Kathleen thinks he's the hottest Chris, and he's really hot, takes the essentially damsel in distress role in Wonder Woman instead of being Captain America or Superman. And that is his most celebrated, like people now think he is the best Chris for being whatever he was in Wonder Woman. Well, it never hurts anybody to show some dimension. It costs you nothing. Correct. So I, I'm, I've i just brought up two examples of white men who've been part of a system that we're trying to encourage and been part of the kind of show that inclusion writers could create more of who certainly didn't lose. No, didn't suffer at all. No. Um, in no way. Uh, so absolutely, it's hard to find a reason why. But there is one reason why, and that is it's going to be harder. 
And when I say that, I don't mean that there are people who are less talented. Uh, as much as I said, you know, that there are people who have the benefit of more experience, which is not the same as having more talent. Mm -hmm. What happens is it doesn't mean they're not out there. It means you have to work harder. It means you have to look longer. In some cases, it might mean that you have to delay production and look longer to find somebody. I've brought this up before on this podcast that uh, during the production of Queen Sugar, there was a demand from Ava DuBernay for, you know, people who were not the typical, for yeah. people in all positions who, not exclusively, but she didn't want to see resumes that were only white men. Mm -hmm. And I've talked about hearing people say, uh, you know, do you want to be the one to bring her a resume that indicates you didn't look hard enough? Yeah. And so what this ultimately comes down to is more, arguably more headaches for studios as they have to search more, arguably more checking of references and checking and balancing because you're not just going to hire Johnny's brother who you already know. Right. Um, you know, you have to actually look into somebody and then check up to see if their work is what they say they mm -hmm. are. To which I say, sorry, not sorry. Like, yeah. it's, it's more work. It's going to make things better. This is the only thing that kills me. It's better. It's always better. We don't need to talk about Black Panther's box office, but we could. We don't need to talk about how well Big Little Lies did with a huge cast of all women and no headliner men, but we could. We don't need to talk about how Jordan Peele is the only one who could write a script like Get Out and get it made and make it happen, and that there are so many stories like his that aren't being told but we could point out that every time there are stories from people who aren't the same people we've been hearing from all this time, it's better. People respond. People are like, oh my God, I haven't seen that in a long time mm -hmm. or ever. That's amazing. I want more. Which again, as somebody pointed out on, uh, on Oscar night, I think it was Kumail Nanjani, was like, it's better for you guys economically. <laughs> yes, that was him. Yeah. Make yeah. money. <laughs> So here's my question to you. If you were Francis McDormand and you were going to put your own money where your mouth was and not just ask people, but start rattling some cages, who would you ask first? Who would you be trying to nail to a wall to make sure they had inclusion writers on their next project? Jennifer Lawrence. Mm, good one. She's immensely powerful. She's immensely powerful. And, and this is a different, She's immensely powerful, and this is a different conversation for, or a related conversation, but for a different time. Red Sparrow mm -hmm. um, is is not been critically well received, mixed reviews at best. Mm -hmm. The box office isn't great, and one of the main objections to this film that Sarah noted and other critics too in their reviews, specifically Sarah honed in on it, is. This movie was, and this is a very simplistic um, description of it, is faux empowerment. Mm, interesting. And the way the movie has been written, as Sarah notes and other people have noted, it's written in a way that imagines what female empowerment would, could, should look like from a male perspective. There's that 
the, the, the scene that everybody is talking about is the hair dyeing scene. So she gets her hair colored and then immediately basically goes swimming. (laughs) (laughs) Exactly. And uh, many people have brought up Elle Woods in Legally Blonde and the aha moment she had in the courtroom where she, right, 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 blah, 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 blah. And so um, for Jennifer Lawrence, you know, as you said, immensely powerful, Jennifer Lawrence could put through an incul... Jennifer Lawrence could put through an inclusion rider, no fucking problem. Right. Absolutely she could. Uh, And why that relates to Red Sparrow is, you know, as we noted, the inclusion memo in its current iteration or supposed supposed current iteration does not affect writers. Mm -hmm. It does not affect writers and directors, and they're sort of the ones putting forward the inclusion memo, not benefiting from it. All those cinematographers and editors Mm -hmm. and costume designers are going to grow up and maybe be able to be writers and directors and producers and performers who are not going to make mistakes like that one uh, and who will be able to to note all the way through, uh, hey, this is not a real thing. This would not happen. Uh, You know, in a way that will be, as you say, beneficial for everyone. Mm-hmm. So you know Effie Brown, who made headlines, she worked on Project Greenlight with Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, and right. it came out that- She was their producer. Yeah, they, they white man explained to her um, during the show, and they did a whole behind the scenes. I imagine someone like Effie Brown, who could have been on the set of Red Sparrow, saying, are, are we sure that scene's going to work? Like, how does she go into a pool- after she's just gotten her hair dyed. Right. Like, that is the kind of thing we're talking about. Absolutely. To, you know, one of my favorite experiences, uh, to go back to talking about the writing room, as you were talking about, was uh, early on in my writing career explaining, uh, (laughs) I don't know if they asked me, but uh, we were talking about uh, whether or not a character would get waxed. And they said, uh, a bikini wax, that is. And uh, the writers I was writing with said, so what happens after you get down from the stirrups? And I said, sorry, the stirrups? <laughs> and these well-meaning dudes, sure. really sophisticated, how, why would they know? Mm-hmm. How should they know? Yeah. They had seen gynecology scenes on television or from, you know, people in their lives and uh, conflated those things. They yep. assumed it would be a similar situation. You're mm-hmm. up on a table. Why wouldn't there be stirrups? Yeah. Uh, and I remember explaining to them, no, uh, no, uh, you hug your knees, yeah. uh, which is, you know, a specific part of the process, but if you're there, you're there. Uh, and they, they use that phrase for a really long time. You hug your knees. Uh, so it's just one of the million things that is made better when more people understand, you know, yeah. similarly, I'm sure there's been a woman somewhere who wrote a scene where, a guy walks into a bathroom and stands at the urinal beside another guy. But of course you don't do that. You walk to the furthest urinal, right? So you're not standing beside another dude. But, or it becomes a story. Like if a dude walks into a urinal and stands beside the other guy in the next urinal. That is so far outside of the normal. That's right. That it becomes part of a conversation. Like, hey, this guy just, like, you go back to the table. This guy just stood beside me. Like, that's not... That doesn't happen. But the point is, multiply that by uh, diversity of experiences in in 
you know, people of color, yes. diversity of experiences economically, mm-hmm. in terms of being differently abled. It doesn't mean that every story knocks on all those doors all the time, but it means that you are making an authentic story that is true in its specificity. So let me end, if you allow me, on one final note about the inclusion writer. Because as we were having this conversation about what it would look like and how it would work, the Bechdel test came to mind. Mm. And I wonder if going forward, as we continue to talk about something like this, and as hopefully, maybe, um, an inclusion writer uh, will start to become more common, if we start applying some sort of Bechdel test equivalency to film sets, to television sets, to productions where it measures like the Bechdel test, but, uh, and many people have acknowledged that it's not perfect. Like, you know, Uh, the thing about the Bechdel test that is so useful is that there, it has to satisfy three points and each of them kind of leads into the other, right? So, uh, it's about film or TV that has two women who talk to each other about something that is not a man. Mm -hmm. So I guess the question then is what are the markers of of that for the inclusion writer. So is it, uh, you know, 50% parody with, uh, I don't know, 10% of spots for uh, people who have two credits or less? And what's a third one? Like, you know, a third point, maybe uh, uh, with an initiative for people of, of underrepresented communities? I'm not sure. You know, there are all kinds of things like in writer's rooms, they can have uh, diversity initiatives and hire writers who are, uh, there's a financial incentive to do that or various union apprenticeships. So I guess the question will be, yeah, where are the points that make the incentives attractive to studios and producers? Even if I hope the incentive is, otherwise Mark Ruffalo walks. Otherwise, Jennifer Lawrence walks, right? So someone out there figured out, let us know what that is. What is the inclusion writer equivalent to Bechdel test? I love that. That's good homework. So this weekend, A Wrinkle in Time opened, directed by Ava DuVernay. Have you seen it yet? I have not. More importantly, have we not made plans to see it together? Or what are your Wrinkle in Time plans? Kathleen dropped on me the other day that she's already seen it, which I found a slight bit of a betrayal. Well, she her excuse, and it's a very good one, is that she saw it at an advanced screening for media because she had to produce a segment on the social starring the young boy who plays Charles Wallace. Yeah, I get it. I still want to be informed <laughs> of these kinds of things before, during, and after. That's right. I I agree. Um, I was informed, but in the way this is how it's informed to me, like, uh, or this is how she informs me. It's a text saying, well, it's, there are no words. It's just all kinds of exclamation points followed by like a, a, I don't know, a series of words that I have to piece together that eventually lead me to understand that she's seeing a wrinkle in time ahead of time. Anyway, um, perhaps by the time this episode airs, I will have seen it. I mean, I do have a free weekend. Um, and I do want to see it. Uh, that said, of course, we know A Wrinkle in Time. This is the first time that a woman of color is doing a movie with a budget of $100 million or more. <sighs> um, and I think we talked about this offline, but 
the story of A Wrinkle in Time is not really what we're going to get to here, but I'm going in blind. I remember very clearly seeing the book in the library in grade five or six and looking at it and not picking it up and recognizing, maybe not then, but recognizing after the fact that that was sort of a, an on-ramp to being a real sci-fi fantasy fan that I didn't take. Uh, so I'm aware of it. And so I'm looking forward to it as, you know, the the late entry. Did you read it? I only read it in 2017. Right. So I only read it last year to get ready for the movie, which was so forever, forever. So forever and ever more, I can say I only read A Wrinkle in Time because Ava DuVernay made the movie. Well, the reason I ask is because in this article that we are excited to dive into, it's a Hollywood Reporter uh, interview with uh, Ava DuVernay that is by Stephen Galloway, who was actually interviewing her like at a at a panel, at a discussion, not a panel, uh, who was actually interviewing her uh, in front of an audience. What's that called? An interview that's being… Q&A. Sure. Yeah. Uh, and so there, it's essentially a transcript. And among the billion things that we want to talk about, uh, Ava DuVernay is the Tiffany Haddish of this podcast. Correct. Uh, she had not read A Wrinkle in Time before she was essentially offered the job. Yeah, I, that that floored me. She did not know the story at no. all. Uh, and still… And she was kind of like, what? Huh? Oh. Yeah, she she talks about, uh, and it's a roundabout way to discuss it, but I think it's kind of worth it. She just she talks about how she took a meeting more or less out of politeness, and because she knew the people who were asking, uh, and they said, "Imagine what you could do with this, with these worlds." And she said, "What do you mean worlds?" And they said, "Yeah, this character jumps worlds," and she was like, "Huh?" <laughs> she had not read it, uh, and was nonetheless their first choice and ultimately made a movie that I think, not to jinx anything, looks poised to do substantial, substantial numbers. And it's very exciting. It's very exciting. This entire article and this interview is exciting. Um, it's That's why we are saying diving into it because it's one of those, another, um, like another Ellen Pompeo kind of work porn, all kinds of porn, wall-to-wall work porn article. And one that I suspect we will continue to come back to and reference once we've seen the movie, maybe seen the movie twice or seen it together or whatever that entails. So where do we start with all the work porn? Well, I think what's interesting is that as much as I uh, have admired Ava DuVernay over the past few years and admired her work, uh, this... Q&A in transcription form tells me a lot more about who she is as a person. Mm -hmm. uh, I didn't know a lot of things about her. Uh, the thing I liked most is that she she's asked somewhere along the way in the article about uh, who do you turn to for advice? And she says, oh, you know, my mom, my family, and, and it sounds douchey, but Oprah. And so <laughs> then later she's asked, so what's the best piece of advice Oprah's ever given you? which is a pretty normal question, right? If you meet Oprah, I want to know everything about everything she said or did. Yes? Yep. And she responds with, well, let me tell you what my mom said, because my mom is just as important to me. Mm -hmm. That's the kind of person that Ava DuVernay is. That's who she is and how she 
keeps it real, if you will, like keeps remembering who she is while she's experiencing this this meteoric rise. So that was a real moment for me of going, okay, I know a little bit about who you are. What was the biggest revelation for you? Well, I'm going to, I don't know that this was my biggest revelation, but I'm going to relate it to knowing who you are and that idea of identity and, um, and how, um, and how our identity is informed and formed in certain spaces. What made me laugh in in not in a, like I wasn't amused, but what made me shake my head and laugh was the uh, anecdote that she shared about Michael Mann. So uh, my favorite Michael Mann movie is Heat. Mm-hmm. That's, uh, I mean, it's a famous movie. It's kind of legendary, especially for that scene between Al Pacino and Robert De Niro in the diner. Um, anyway, so she, um, she, Ava, was a publicist before she was a director. And we get into that in this article too. She talks about her work in publicity, in in film publicity in particular. And she was a publicist and um, and she kind of actually talks about how being a publicist led her to being a director because she was absorbing, watching filmmaking as a publicist and being on set and just learning, that was her like entry level into directing. Anyway, so she talks about how she was the publicist on Collateral, which was the movie starring uh, Tom Cruise and Jamie Foxx. Michael Mann directed it and she's asked about Michael Mann. And Stephen Galloway says to her, hey, let us be blunt. Michael Mann is not the easiest director to work for if you are the unit publicist. Are you going to say it on the record? And she says, no, I'm, I'm not going to say anything. But it's funny because I do run into him. You know, she talks about where she runs into him twice a year. And Galloway says to her, does he remember you? And Ava goes, oh, no, he wouldn't remember me. I mean, he wouldn't remember me. I was many, one of many hundreds. So I get it that Michael Mann wouldn't remember her if she wasn't Ava DuVernay of Selma and of 13th and of now A Wrinkle in Time. But it makes me, like, it makes me laugh and shake my head that, and I don't think she's being facetious here either. She clearly knows who he is. They had set up prior to her statement here that he's notoriously not the easiest director to work for. So you have a certain picture of who Michael Mann is. And the fact that, like, here's somebody who comes and goes and makes all these movies and somebody who, you know, was the publicist, the unit publicist on your film, who has now become one of the most acclaimed director in the business, he wouldn't remember her. And they run into each other, remember, twice a year at Academy meetings. Well, yeah, I think one of the things that's kind of coming out about this story is, yeah, of course he wouldn't. Uh, and somebody probably had to point out to him, you know, she used to work for us, uh-huh. work for you. But the other thing, uh, and she does go into this a lot, is that uh, the unit publicist on a film or a TV show is a pretty thankless job. That is not part of the crew. We always talk about like the team, the crew, above the line, below the line. And that is somebody who is paid by the studio or paid by the project, but they're outside the family. Mm -hmm. They're not showing up at 6 a.m. every day and going home at 11. They're not like in it with everyone. And they sort of are seen as somebody who shows up at some time and needs something from everybody. And so the more I read about her talking about the experience of being a unit publicist, the more I thought, 
oh, this is why she has a perspective. This is why she has an eye because she spent time being, as you say, uh, being somebody who was underappreciated, like on a Michael Mann set or whatever, but also being uh, the person who's underappreciated on any set mm-hmm. and having to look at things and go like, well, if I had more power, I would do this. If I had it to do differently, I would do that. And actually says, goes on to say, because she was waiting around so much, because her time was, uh, call it the most wasteable, she spent a lot of time watching directors and going, oh, I wouldn't do that. Yeah. I wouldn't choose that. And which is really, it's a really interesting and unusual way to develop your eye. But the result of this actually is management and leadership strategy. So a few weeks ago, we talked about Glenn Mazzara, mm-hmm. who was the showrunner for The Walking Dead. And he talked about how he was, for 13 years, a hospital administrator. Right. And through that experience and then coming to Hollywood, he identified that one of the major problems with people who hold leadership positions in Hollywood is that they don't understand how to manage. Yeah, they have no training. That's right. And so there is a a paragraph, and again, this is a long interview. It's a great read. Please read it, where… Ava DuVernay goes into describing her leadership and management style, how she understands what each department does, the the work and the learning that preceded her understanding of, of what departments do, and how she, in knowing and taking the time to know it, then crafted and built her sets. And what I mean, I'm not mean, I don't mean construction of sets, but actually built the culture of her sets so that, you know, she was identifying the best practices in each department so that she could make a film because all those departments have to work together and effectively, and she has to manage them all. I think she likens a director to what, like a CEO like a mini CEO of a world. Right. Uh, Yeah, I think she says, or you're the director of the company or whatever. That's right. And frankly, we don't typically in these kinds of interviews, when you have interviews with, I don't know, fucking like James Cameron or Michael Bay or whatever, we don't hear a lot of talk about the management work that goes into being a director. We hear about the shots and scouting for the locations and working with the actors on their motivation. But we don't hear the talk from these directors, Scorsese or uh, Guillermo del Toro does it a little. Like I I will say, Guillermo del Toro does go into that. But the the leadership and the CEO-ness of being a director, and she definitely taps into that here. Well, what's so interesting, first of all, From the same paragraph in this interview, you and I have taken two totally different points uh, because I was thinking of of how amazing it is to go to film school essentially behind the back of a director, like waiting around and watching. And to your point, she was also, you know, she's learning all her shots, but to your point, she was also going to business school at the same time. Yeah. But one of the things that's so interesting, though, to me is that There are a couple of mentions of David Oyelowo, and we'll get more into him later, but she's worked with him several times. Mm -hmm. Uh, And when you mention Guillermo del Toro, I realized Guillermo del Toro has built uh, essentially a company, which is to say he works here in Toronto. He makes a lot of his films here. He's going back to the same people over and over again uh, to make those films. And I don't know what the crossover is from, say, 
Queen Sugar to Selma to uh, A Wrinkle in Time in terms of the cast and crew, I bet you it is substantial. These are people who are creating relationships Mm -hmm. and businesses, Mm -hmm. you know, are the CEOs of businesses that they intend to work on and with for a long time while still bringing in new people, while still having new projects. People who work with James Cameron are likely to be fired uh, (laughs) or are likely to hold their breath, tough it out, and like pray for the end. Yeah. Uh, and, you know, and know that they're doing it on some level for the war stories. Yeah. I mean, it's been a long time now, but remember before Titanic came out, there were notorious stories about how cold, how wet, how miserable everybody was. Uh, There were stories like that on almost every one of his movies, and he's not the only one. He's just the one you brought up. So I think there's investment for the long term, really evident in some of these stories that she's talking about, like building a team for the long term as opposed to a slash and burn, fuck all y'all, I'll hire new people next time. Well, let's talk about building a team for the long term. You mentioned David Oyelowo and that they've uh, worked together several times. So yeah, I mean, let's let's go there. Let's go to the David Oyelowo sections. Of course, just David Oyelowo played Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. in Selma. But before that, um, he met her because, uh, it's absurd to me, uh, but basically David Oyelowo had met Ava DuVernay because, well, she talks about how, for example, uh, at one point Galloway asks her, how did you know so-and-so? And And she says, oh, from being black, Uh, being, (laughs) explaining that in Hollywood, there's only so many black people who are working. And so while they're not all buds and in the club, they kind of all keep track of each other. But she explains that she and David Oyelowo had met, had known of each other, but that he was on a flight to Toronto. Mm -hmm. Toronto comes up more than once. Yeah. uh, And a random dude who is never named says, excuse me, sir, I think I've seen you in a movie before. Uh, You're David Oyelowo. Should I invest in independent films? And Oyelowo says, well, whose film? What film? And the guy shows him the script. And it's her script. It was the movie that she made before Selma. And uh, he was like, oh, yeah, I've heard of her. You probably should. Can I read that script? And then read it and called her and said, I want to be in this movie, which is the kind of fairy tale story that never happens, right? Except it happens if you have done the work and the script that you have written, which is amazing, is already in the hands of the right people so that it can be casually handed off to an actor who will later, you know, champion it. Yes. And then create a relationship that allows him to champion you again. I mean, do you want to pick up that part of the story? Because that's, it's also a pretty amazing part of the fairy tale. So are you talking about Lee Daniels and the butler? Uh, Yeah. This amazing twist. So, um, so they met on this plane or they didn't meet on this plane. This, this, this plane brought them together. And then she goes on and she says, quote, because he, and she's talking about David, during that time was attached to a different version of Selma to be directed by Lee Daniels. And when Lee Daniels decided that he wanted to go make The Butler because it was a bigger budget and a more robust and organized production, he went to make The Butler, which had some things about Dr. King in it. He said, I am not going to also make Selma. And so David had been Lee Daniels' king, and David is a hustler, a British hustler, okay? Yeah, he's a hustler. And so he said, well, I'm going to keep this film alive so I can play king, which was his dream. 
Right. Which, and so he said, uh, you know, hey, uh, you guys should make this with this director, Ava DuVernay, because of course he'd just done this previous small film with her, Middle of Nowhere. That was the script that he read on the plane. I mean, that's a a fairy godfather, if you will. Yeah. But somebody who, you know, believes in you, who knows that you're going to work together, that it's going to be more than the sum of its parts. Uh, so it's a good relationship investment on both their parts. On both their parts. And here, shout out to David Oyelowo for showing his work. I mean, sure, he wanted to play Dr. King. And for him, it was like, this is going to be my best opportunity with this woman. Right. Who uh, goes on to point out all kinds of things. I mean, we could spend an hour just on what she talks about now in terms of the making of Selma. And I think uh, one of the things she says was the reason that you originally sent me this article in the first mm-hmm. place, and we'll, and we'll get to that. But one of the things she talks about uh, is that her father is from Lowndes County, Alabama, which is the county between Montgomery and Selma. Uh, so the march literally goes right through there. Yeah. And there was no kind of mention of that or of who lived there or what that was like. And that was one of the things that she brought to the telling of the story, right? Was the specificity of yes. who was living there at that time. That's why, uh, you know, when writers are pitching projects, we are told you want to explain why you are the right person to tell this story. Right. Why this is your story. And in that small anecdote, she gives just one reason about why she's the one to That's tell right. the story. And yet there's a, if you want to call it this, a double-edged sword to that. Because in telling the story from her perspective and her interpretation of historical um, historical logistics, is that the right word for it? Sure. Uh the criticism about Selma that came out after the film's release was that the depiction of Lyndon B. Johnson was not the depiction that people recognized. And she's saying that at the time, she did not defend the film and that interpretation, her interpretation, uh, the way that she would now. And she very candidly says, listen, I was trying to protect the chances for David Oyelowo to get an Oscar nomination. The Oscar nominations and the campaign was the priority. I did not want to come out guns blazing and call out what it was, which is a sort of privilege um, of coverage, and call out the fact that there is a certain interpretation about LBJ that is considered the standard because it was interpreted by white people who admired him. Yeah, I'm just going to call like, who's telling the story? Who's telling the history that you know? Who yes. wrote the history? Who wrote the books? That's right. Consider who told your stories mm-hmm. and who told them to you. That's right. When you're interpreting who recognized what, what way. She calls it privileged and pedestrian um, because these historians or these people who knew LBJ were like, what she's, you know, she is painting him in a negative light and it didn't go down that way. And what she's saying is, but you know what? Here's what we saw in the black community. Here's what we thought. Here's how we interpreted it. And that's the story I am going to tell. And I've already established, as you just said, why I am the best person to tell it. I grew up there. My dad grew up there. He knows the stories. I've been to the locations. 
And so what she's saying right now is, she's not saying she regrets it, but she's saying, I have no time for that kind of defense of it anymore um, and protecting the Oscar chances. If I had to do it over again today, I would call out the fact that, hey, white man, you may see it your way, but I don't say, but a lot of other people didn't see it that way. Or even more baldly, you weren't there. Mm-hmm. Like, here's a lot of stories that weren't told, you know? Um, it's so interesting to me because if you had asked me when Selma was, uh, that is to say when the movie was released, yeah, uh, I think I thought it was 2016. Uh, but the movie was made in 2014 mm-hmm. uh, and released before that. My dates were a little off. And that matters because what I couldn't stop thinking about while reading that section was, of course, Hamilton and Lin-Manuel Miranda and how confidently he uh, strode forward with his depiction of all kinds of founding fathers, right? With uh, George Washington as being uh, relatively humble and cautious with Thomas Jefferson being bombastic and egotistical Mm -hmm. and James Madison being weak and all these things. And there was some criticism, but Mm -hmm. not like this. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if some of that is male privilege. Mm -hmm. I don't know if Ava DuVernay broke down some of that barrier Mm -hmm. such that he had an easier time of it. Or if there's a distance in, you know, a singing, dancing Thomas Jefferson that allows you some leeway. But it's interesting because I think had those two productions been reversed, right? I think had that had Hamilton come first, right? She would have faced a much easier set of criticisms, which is to say, uh, yes, history can be interpreted by many in many ways, right? Or looking at Lyndon B. Johnson in a new way, right? Doesn't make him less rich; it makes him more rich, which is the, what has right. happened with all of the founding fathers in in Hamilton. Right? They've all gained sort of new popularity, yeah, rather than less. So I'm interested in in how that would have gone down had it been reversed, because it seems like she's fighting a battle that he didn't have to fight, or mm-hmm. she had to soften her words, right, and her intent, yeah, as women often do, mm-hmm. in a way that he didn't. But I think that what if we look back on this in 15 to 20 years and we're already looking back on it now as she is in this interview, she made the film she wanted to make. The promotion of it perhaps may not have been uh, the same if we had to do it all over again, but she only built upon that because she jumped from sev- because she jumped from Selma to 13th. Right. And... For me, personally, and of course I haven't seen A Wrinkle in Time yet, 13th is her seminal work. Right. Um, she talks about how there are like 12 and 13-year-olds who are coming up to her and, and talking to her about what they learned from, from 13th. Um, she, she talks about Storm Reed and how… You know, this is a 13, 14-year-old kid who plays Meg Murray in A Wrinkle in Time. And Storm comes up to her one day and she's like, have you seen my Instagram? And like she basically posted her Instagram like five minutes ago. And, you know, Ava has this hilarious way of explaining that like, 
So Storm's 14, so when she posts on Instagram, she expects everyone in her life to have seen it like the minute or a second after she posts it. But I was like, no, Storm, like what did you post? I was expecting her to be like, oh, here's me in this cute outfit. And it turns out that Storm was posting in front of a bus um, and talking about her past and her ancestors and what she learned from watching 13th. Like specifically, she said she was on a bus uh, where Storm Reed is – on the side of the bus because Wrinkle in Time is being advertised and says, like, from my ancestors having to sit in the back of the bus yeah. to me being on the side of the bus, like, yeah. how far we've come. That's right. Like, uh, and, you know, and Ava in the context of telling the story is like, wow, how tuned in she is, how woke she is. But to your point, she's contributing to that. She's the one who's creating a world in which they get to be sort of that tuned yeah. in and that, uh, and that, yeah. Educated. And they do spend some time talking about the influence and the impact of 13th. And by the way, if you're out there and if you haven't seen it, it is, it is like quite an achievement. And I will say that I, much of my understanding of how blackness functions and doesn't function and how whiteness um, is, is, is prioritized a lot of it is is from that film and seeing things interpreted from another perspective. That wasn't very articulate, but C-13. I want to go back, though, to something that uh, you said about, uh, you said that basically Salma allowed her to do 13th, and she says, you know, I didn't say anything about people's mischaracterizations of Selma because I wanted David Oyelowo to get the Oscar nod. Right. Which ultimately he did not get. He did not. Uh, he got the Golden Globe nomination uh, yeah. and a lot of attention. And I think yeah. he's done very well. But Selma was nominated for Best Picture. Right. But yeah. And so there's, you often say to me, oh, that thing you always say. But this is one that I feel like there's a phrase that you say that has to do with kind of biding your time or, or, keeping in mind that sometimes there is thankless work for the greater good. Do you know what I mean? I don't know what the phrase it is, but okay. But that's a thing that you say I or think believe. think so, yeah. Can you explain a little bit about that? I think what you're thinking of is a lot of my like feng shui and zodiac talk about harvesting. Oh, yes. And that there are some years where you push – your luck is flowing and it's time to be aggressive. It's go time. And there are other years where it's not go time and you buckle down, keep your head down, don't, uh, don't invest, no pedal to the metal. Don't rock the boat. Because in those years, what you harvest in putting your head down and just focusing and gathering and learning you will spend that. The time will come, the tides will turn, the energy and the luck flow will come so that the momentum behind you will allow you to spend what you've been saving up and hoarding and harvesting. To You can use that. It just Is seems- Is that it? I think so. I actually do think that's what you mean. When you say, sometimes I say to you, well, ask for more, do this, push. And you say, no, it's not the time for it. I'm just going to keep going. Yeah. Uh, and whether that's based in 
feng shui or Oscar <laughs> hopes or, yeah. or anything else, um, I think it's a rare and probably really covetable work skill. I think there's a real skill in not only knowing your worth and working hard towards what you want, but really picking your moment Mm -hmm. to push. Yes. And had she pushed back then, as much as we agree with what she says, as much as the interpretation of her interpretation of Lyndon B. Johnson was maybe unfairly maligned, is it more prudent to, I always love words like that because they've never been applied to me in my life, Um, but is it more prudent to wait to spend the capital later? Yep. And now she's, you know, poised to open a really huge movie and is about to have more capital on top of that, which she didn't spend back then. Yes. And I, 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 I think that for Ava, too, there's also an example here, and it's related to the harvest and when to push and when not to push, where she says she came into directing late. Oh, Yeah. Um, She says she didn't pick up a camera until she was 32. Yeah. I want to remind you that Ryan Coogler is 31 at this (laughs) point in time. Yeah. Or Uh, Ryan Coogler, think about Damien Chazelle. Yeah, of course. uh, Yeah. Um, And that she pivoted a lot. Uh, A thing that really surprised me that I didn't know is that she was working at, she had an internship at CBS Mm -hmm. after university. She was going to be a journalist. Mm-hmm. That was going to be her thing, yeah. like a broadcast journalist. Yeah. And pivoted away from it because she was signed to cover the yes. OJ trial. Yes. And it was sort of, you know, it felt tawdry and it felt… It soul-sucked her. Right. But in her defense, not that she needs defending, but that was a real seminal moment when journalism kind of changed, yeah. right? When things were different and when you didn't want to do maybe that kind of coverage, but everybody else was, you had to. Uh, And so she was there at that moment and then went, okay, now what? And changed and headed towards film publicity for Mm -hmm. some time. Uh, And then because of the education that she had had over the shoulders of of directors who didn't want to give her time to interview anybody, uh, Mm -hmm. because I know the life of, you know, of set life. Yes. Um, then went and made a couple of short films and yeah. then made a, uh, a feature. I think she made her first feature for $6,000 yeah. and not much more for the second one, which is where she met Oyelowo, so forth and so on. Well, it's- and that speaks to accumulated capital. It can come not just in the form of goodwill and influence, but in the term, like in the form of knowledge from journalism and CBS to understanding how it works on unit publicity and a film set to them becoming a director yourself that is a capital or lots of capital. And actually, you see this a lot in show business. Uh, for every person who says they wanted to become a filmmaker when they were 17, like Dawson Leary, mm-hmm. and waves around a camera, there are two people who are uh, ex-lawyers, ex-finance people, mm-hmm. ex-business types who brought a new perspective that was really helpful to the business. And they're good shifters. You're a shifter. You weren't in the business from the day you were born. You walked over here from somewhere else. I got into TV at the same age that she got into act, uh, not acting, directing. Right. 32. Right. You were something else before. You were in fundraising and that's what you thought you were going to be. Yes. Uh, 
And I think that that experience in the outside world, mm-hmm. I think knowing how something that is not film and TV works yeah. is incredibly important, not just for being a more mature person, which uh, the media is not always known for, mm-hmm. uh, but for uh, having an idea of how to translate yeah. what matters inside film and television to the people who are outside of it. Yeah. Uh, and it's of an immense value. And we're dancing around something here, but if you are listening and you're like, yeah, but that's her, but she's 32, but I'm 36, so I'm too old. Yeah. Or uh, I've always wanted to do this, but I just made a different choice and now it's not time. It is, I've never seen it fail that the person who walks in at 40 is often the most skilled and valued person in the room. I don't see a reason why not. Especially women. Especially women. Um, I, I want to come full circle here if we're getting to the end of our podcast and our episode, because we talked at the beginning about war rooms and about sharing knowledge. One of the things that we both lit up on, um, in this article was the fact that she and Ryan Coogler were working in the same space at Disney. For Ryan Coogler, it was Marvel Disney. Um, during the production and post for Black Panther and A Wrinkle in Time. Um, she, she, she turned down Black Panther to do 13th, P.S. No regrets about that. As she says, I was meant to do 13th and, you know, Coogler's Black Panther, as we have seen, was meant for, 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 for Coogler. But they were working side by side, not necessarily showing each other their work. But she talks about how she would see his car there and she'd know he was there and they'd go for walks around the lot. So no, this is not necessarily a war room situation, but it is a creative collaborator community situation where you happen to have somebody in your life who is doing exactly what you're doing and struggling with exactly the same thing that you're struggling with, but it's still different. And yet somehow you find yourself in the same space and you're able to bounce around and off each other. You've hit on what is, I think, one of the most important keys to success. I was a little bristly actually when this was brought up uh, because I read the question by Galloway as hinting or implying uh-huh. that maybe was she getting help yes, from right. Ryan Coogler? Right. Was she, mm-hmm. you know, uh, consulting with him? And, you know, maybe okay. that might follow. Yeah. Uh, oh, was he consulting with her? Uh, and it's it's just got the edge of, you know, wouldn't that be amazing mm-hmm. if you had the talent Ryan Coogler with right. you as though she's not the talent Ava DuVernay? I didn't read it that way, but that's interesting. Okay. Um, And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe that was not the intent. But what I loved is that when she turns it around, when she says, no, we didn't do that, but we would take walks and, Mm -hmm. you know, consult, Mm -hmm. not even consult, console Mm -hmm. each other about, you know, working uh, long hours or being in post at the same time or so forth. Here's what I love. I am focused on ages always. As I said, Ryan Coogler is 31. Mm -hmm. Ava DuVernay is 45 but they are from the same class. Mm -hmm. And if you do make a switch, 
If you move over to any kind of business, even if you're like, fuck television, I'm going to go be a banker. Yeah. You have to find your class. Mm -hmm. You have to find the people who are kind of at the same level at the same time and who you will be able to talk to Mm -hmm. and compare notes with and breathe with because the business is insane. Any business is insane. And you want to be able to have checks and balances, but that doesn't necessarily mean checks and balances about the work. Yeah. Just people who you can touch in with. Yeah. And when you are these two people and you're at the head of incredibly uh, successful films for this incredibly successful studio, Mm -hmm. I'm just going to say it because they won't say it. The pressure would be immense, Mm -hmm. like overwhelming. All that fucking money that you're responsible for. Every day. Wondering hundreds of millions of dollars, and you got to earn it all back. Yeah, and every decision you make is this gonna make people not come? Is this gonna make this? Mm -hmm. You have to have confidence in your vision, yeah, and confidence in every choice and decision that you make. And look, you would be superhuman if you didn't sometimes have. Mm -hmm. Moments when you needed to say to somebody else, hey, this is a lot. Yeah. And I love that they found each other. Yeah. That these two are each other's class. Yeah. Because they know what it's like to be on, if I understand correctly, like each on kind of their third or fourth film. Yes. (laughs) And arguably the two most important directors, Mm -hmm. certainly this year. I... And I think that these are the stories that we're just beginning to tell. It wasn't on trend for people to share, like geniuses, creative geniuses to share stories about collaborating or just having a mentor or not even a mentor, but like a peer. A buddy. Yeah. Exactly. You know, recently, um, Yasek and I sat down and we were halfway through this documentary about Steven Spielberg and all these other directors like... Um, I think Scorsese talks about him and, um, there's George Lucas who talks about him and they share in their youth, like, you know, back in the seventies, seventies and eighties when they were like really, really at the height of their creative output and the things that they've known, they're known for, they started sharing these stories of how they used to get together and bounce things off of each other and encourage each other. But at the time... That was not the narrative that was was told. Right. right? They were these singular auteurs. They're they're like ripping their hair out. They all had long hair at the time and they probably had hairy chests too. And like the image you get is like papers flying everywhere and a struggle and there's no one else there and they had to like make it through the night by themselves. Um, When in fact, this has always been the case, we're just glamorizing, we're just glamorizing it now or at least making it normalized. Or not glamorizing, as you say, the sort of uh, that singular vision, I don't need anybody or whatever. And then wondering why people who tried to do it themselves weren't having as much success. Because they actually did have a whole bunch of resources. And of course, I know I don't have to say this, but I would like to because people out there, hopefully listening, are saying, yeah, yeah, we do it in art industries too. It doesn't just happen in film directing or in this business that we're talking about. It happens across other creative, like creative endeavors, um, and of course in other departments and other industries. I saw a documentary about romance novel writers, mm-hmm. 
all of like, you know, and part of this part of the documentary was about how they're disparaged and maligned. It's not like as elite literature as fucking whoever. I don't know. Jeff, like Jonathan Franzen. And they talk about these romance writers talked about how they're a community. They write together. They send each other drafts. They offer advice. They help each other work out a story problem. And they talk about the fact that they're probably within the literary community the most collaborative in terms of how they support each other's books and on Facebook share release dates. Um, This is becoming more and more common. And I wonder whether or not with an example like Ava and Ryan and Ava sharing, sometimes it's just a walk around a lot whether or not we can all change our work practices and not be so fucking precious about this fantasy of when we when success arrives about this fantasy in in which when success arrives we can tell the story about how we were alone one night and this epiphany came and you wrote this scene and this is what happens most of the time you don't do it alone well, no, you don't. And you said precious about the story, but what makes me laugh is that it, you also have to be not precious about the process. You have to be vulnerable, right? It means you don't, here's how you get a class. Because if I had heard this advice, I would have been like, yeah, but where are they? You can't like tape up a, a poster with like pull tags on a, on a lamppost. Yeah. You know, recently somebody who I know, but who I have not worked with before, uh, emailed me and said, hey, can I ask a favor? Can you read this? And I thought, yeah, of course I can. I'm honored to be asked. Yeah. And just like that, now we are those people to each other. That's a that's a, a yeah. relationship that has been created. I She did not say, oh, but she might be weird if, I, if she thinks it's bad or, you know, I didn't read it and snicker, oh my God, this is the worst or the best or whatever. You have to kind of get over your own vulnerability of – feeling like it's weird to create those bonds, talking to somebody else in your office about like, hey, we both agree that this, I don't know, process for filing is fucked, right? Whatever it is, you have to go and create that class and create a, a, it doesn't have to be a friendship. It does not have to be about like hanging out and eating popcorn and whatever, a, a camaraderie so that you have those resources to lean on because nobody gets here alone. On that note, share your war room stories with us or your work buddy stories with us, your collaborative stories with us. Um, we, I think, have, have spent a lot of time on this episode in particular talking about collaboration through all of our topics. And um, for us, like, I don't know without collaboration what Laney Gossip would be, what this podcast would be. Like, certainly I couldn't do this podcast by myself. I mean, uh, that's all very true, but I'm a little distracted because I just realized what we're going to title this episode of the podcast and how much it's going to annoy Yasik. What? The room where it happens. <laughs> he doesn't know. He wouldn't know. He doesn't know that that is related to Hamilton, but now he does. But now he does. <laughs> uh, we have homework for you. In addition to uh, what Lainey asked you about what your tenets of the uh, inclusion writer would look like. 
we also are going to be talking about Donald Glover and Atlanta when we have our next episode. So study up before then. Uh, the first episode came out loud. The first episode came out on March the 1st. Uh, so it is airing on Thursdays. And so you will be just about caught up next time we talk. If you dig in now. Thank you so much for listening. Please continue to leave your comments on iTunes. Check us out on iTunes and Google play and Spotify. And until then, until next time, work hard, show your work. Thanks for listening. Bye. Bye. Bye.